Hello and welcome to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kelly, your host. So happy to be here with you on Labor Day. Labor Day uh, is the last day of unofficial uh, summer, or it's the unofficial last day of summer here in the United States. If you're listening around the world, we have maybe you have this uh, too in your country on uh, today or another day. I don't know. Uh, but uh, Labor Day is the day that we celebrate just what it says, labor. Now, I don't know for sure if we're celebrating more the labor movement or laborers, but uh, either way, uh, as a Catholic, certainly the Catholic uh, Church has, of any institution in the world, I would say, has the best record of supporting and cherishing those who work and the work they do. So we are very happy to celebrate uh, Labor Day, and we're very happy you chose to be here with us. It's also, because it's a holiday, maybe this is your first time listening to Catholic Answers, because maybe usually you're doing something else like work at this time. If it is, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we're uh, apostolate of, uh, of sharing, defending the Catholic faith. We are in Southern California. If you want, to, Well, we're mostly in Southern California. Uh, we'll talk to Joe in a second, who's not in Southern California. But you can find us at Catholic.com. Check out all we do at catholic.com. Today we're going to do something fun. We did, we've done this once before, and we had a great time doing it, so we're going to try it again. It's, uh, it's a combination of video and, and other open forum questions. People uh, got to submit whatever questions they, weren't, or they wanted, either uh, via video, which uh, because of the modern technology we can now do on this program, or they just uh, wrote a question and sent it to us. But what we, uh, the, where we got these questions is from our Society 315. Society 315 is our uh, giving society here. It's the basic giving society here at Catholic Answers. Uh, starting at $10 a month, uh, you become a you can become a member of Society 315, and then you get all kinds of benefits, including a very cool Society 315 t-shirt, and talks, and uh, retreats, and all kinds of uh, interesting things that uh, are, are only made available to our Society 315 members. And uh, among the benefits is you get to submit your video for when we do a Society 315 open forum. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest. He's going to answer all these questions that we've got in. Joe is an extraordinary apologist and the author of a bunch of books, including the new book, The Eucharist Really Is. is. <laughs> Close. The Eucharist Is Really Jesus. Joe Heschmeyer, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Would you I was going to do some holiday puns, but I thought they'd be too belabored. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, for not doing any holiday puns. Uh, uh, would you agree with my assessment that uh, the Catholic Church is, is uh, as an institution, uh, celebrates work and the worker and uh, the uplifting of both the work and the worker? Yeah, there's a, a long and beautiful history and tradition there. If you want a good Labor Day activity, if you're the kind of person who enjoys this sort of thing, uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, in I think 1897, has a, a really famous encyclical called Rerum Novarum, R-E-R-U-M, N-O-V-A-R-U-M, uh, where it's on the rights and dignity of workers, and it's really beautiful to just see someone say, "Yeah, what does Christianity have to say about the dignity and rights of working people?" And yeah, and, and even questions like. What is a just wage? You know, you hear this talk about, you know, a just wage is $15 an hour. Now I'm hearing even $22 an hour. Like, what is a just wage? And, and how do we determine that? Is it just whatever the market will sustain? Because if that's the case, we should get rid of minimum wage. But is there some other moral consideration like the good of the human person? Which, spoiler alert, there is. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> a spoiler alert, the church is in favor of the good of the human person? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, and doesn't want people even contractually to enter into things that violate their dignity. Um, but you need something more than consent. It's, it's funny, you know, on one side of the aisle, 
we have to remind people of that when it comes to sexual ethics. On the other side of the aisle, we have to remind people of that when it comes to economics, that there there's a greater good than just people consenting. Yeah, yeah, there is indeed. And I've, I've thought, and I've, I've written about this a little bit, Joe, that sometimes when we have these kind of modern people who want to kind of make Jesus more esoteric than he is, and did he travel to India, did he go to... The, one of the beautiful things about the life of Jesus is the Lord came and lived his life as a laborer and, and lived it with his father. He learned he was an apprentice laborer, and then he was, uh, I don't know what his labor was, you know, what medium that he worked in, but he was a tecton, and his father was a tecton. And that is God's uh, communicating something to us there. He is. And even, you know, think about in John chapter 1, um, where one of the apostles, upon hearing about Jesus, isn't immediately like, I'm going to go find out about that teacher and follow him. I believe it's Nathaniel. He asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? Yeah. And yeah. that tells you something of the reputation of Nazareth. This is a working man from a, a very working class kind of town. And so I heard a priest um, say it might be helpful in understanding this to picture whatever that is for you. You know, he, he gave the example nationally that people can kind of turn their nose down at like the Appalachian region. And uh, look, West Virginians, I'm not insulting West Virginia here. Uh, but, you know, whatever, whether it's in your community, in your neighborhood, if you've got some area that people are likely to turn their nose up at it, then then by all means, like uh, impose that mentally and then realize that's emblazoned on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. Yeah. Of the Jews. That this is a, a, the ultimate vindication of the working class is, is actually right there. It's not some Marxist revolt. Uh, one of the, you mentioned Rerum Navarum, and I got to say, one of my favorite things in reading it was a kind of a surprise to me, and it was the Pope's, and this, this is the continuous message of the Church, utter rejection of class warfare or class <laughs> contest. What he says is that the workplace, just like everything else, should be imbued with love for one another, and that the the person who runs the business and owns the business should love the worker <laughs> and the worker should that, that this that, that nothing is accepted nothing is held out from god's sphere of love the workplace is not a place to be like nah this is uh sorry you you can have love everywhere else but not here uh, love in the sense of willing the the true good of the other is essential to the workplace as far as the catholic church is concerned yeah, I mean, I've seen the popular slogan, no war, but class war, uh, from kind of certain political segments in society today. And it seems like the logic of that is really self-defeating. If you can attack the wealthy because they've done something wrong, why not a thousand other groups have done something wrong? And then you're just saying war. <laughs> you're not saying no war at all. <laughs> <Right>. Like <laughs> Once you resolve, I'm not going to forgive, I'm not going to love people who I think have done wrong or are part of the problem. Well, I've got bad news. All of us in various ways, are part of the problem. And and so that is ultimately a recipe to tear society apart and tear people apart. Uh, well, um, so anyways, happy Labor Day uh, to you. Read Rerum Navarum if you get the chance. It's really exciting. But, the, but following Rerum Navarum, there's a whole series of papal documents that come out trying to help bring the light of Christ into the modern workplace. That's, I, that's the way I would describe Catholic social uh, teaching for the last, oh, about, not quite a century and a half, but more than a century and a quarter. Well, no, exactly a century and a quarter, actually, <laughs> now yeah. that I think about it. Uh, uh, and it's beautiful. It, as a Catholic, it's something to be so proud of, in the, in the good sense of proud. Uh, proud of in the sense that 
this is a reminder that the church uh, loves and teaches love, and even in the modern workplace, wants to bring that. Yeah, you know, this is one of those political issues where I think a lot of people have a sense we could be doing better than we are, that oh. nobody really seems to be presenting an option that, that seems very good or very workable. But it actually turns out if you follow the principles of Rerum Novarum, and you don't need to wait for the government to do it for you, you can just actually improve conditions in your workplace. Wow, it, it's like that you can have those social <laughs> changes right there on the ground, yeah. and you, you don't need to wait for some top-down, universal, one-size-fits-all program. You can just do it. You can love people better. You can treat people better. And here are some practical things to consider as you're trying to do that. Uh, that brings us to the first break. We're going to get to a video. Uh, we'll start with a, a video question for Joe when we come back right up to this on Catholic Answers Live. Catholic Answers Live. Do you have a question but prefer to ask it privately? Catholic Questions can help. Go to catholicquestions.com to ask your question online, email us, drop us a letter, or give us a call. Longtime Catholic Answers Live apologist and author Jim Blackburn or another Catholic Questions apologist will be happy to assist you. Catholic Questions proudly supports Catholic Answers Live. So visit us at catholicquestions.com today. That's catholicquestions.com. He is honored as a doctor of the church and the so-called pillar of faith. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. St. Cyril of Alexandria was patriarch of Alexandria and is famed for his defense of the Blessed Mother's title Theotokos, God-bearer, at the Council of Ephesus in 431 against the Nestorian heretics who denied the union of Christ's human and divine natures. For that, he is called Doctor of the Incarnation. To find out more, visit EWTN.com and click on Catholicism. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. The reason we have video questions is we have a thing called the Society 315, which you can uh, uh, you can join. Uh, it's a ten, it's ten dollars a month to become a member of Society 315, and, and lots and lots of people have been kind enough to uh, take that up and become uh, monthly supporters of us of the work we do here at Catholic Answers. And uh, so we got a bunch of video questions for Joe. We also have questions where people they didn't have time or they weren't uh, inclined to make a video, so they just sent their question, and I'll read those for Joe as we go. Uh, and the first one, Joe and I, I should tell you, are at the opposite ends of the of family life. My uh, uh, youngest child turns twenty five in a month, and uh, Joe's youngest child turns well. Your child, your youngest child, is zero right now. Uh, and yes, turns turns this one. Is, this is one of the weird <laughs> things about. Uh, pre-recording an episode for a holiday is as of when we're speaking, the baby is not born. Oh, yeah, that's right. The baby might come. Oh, I'm assuming because the due date is <laughs> the 13th. If if we have not had this baby yet, we're going to need a different kind of Labor Day. <laughs> so Labor Day is coming for Anna. Uh, okay, well, um, uh, so uh, the reason I, I, I give that little preface is we have a question from Angelina, who's nine years old, and uh, my wife and, have, and I have been through, and I say my wife and I mostly, I, I was not extremely helpful in the lice explosions. When they come, ah, you get them in preschool now, you get them in kindergarten, then you get them in uh, elementary school. And this, uh, the lice have become more powerful than human beings. I don't know how this happened, but there was a time when you could kill lice. You can't anymore. It's a futile battle. We're losing to the lice. So... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I get upset when I think about it. Uh, but he, this one comes from Annie, and I just give you this preface. Uh, her mom wrote, because uh, Annie, uh, excuse me, Angelina is, is going to ask the question. She's nine years old. And her mom, Annie, said, my nine-year-old daughter has a question, a little background on this. At our church festival this weekend, several kids ended up passing lights along. Ooh. Ah, life in the modern world. Yeah, we just got over poison ivy around here, which was oh, you guys got also po- bad. Yeah, well, yeah. I, my daughter got it. My son got it maybe a tiny bit. My daughter was all puffy and everything else, and and Aww. she happened to get a sickness at the same time, so she was like puffy and vomiting, and so the doctor was afraid it was like anaphylactic shock, and it was just a weird coincidence. What do they give him for a poison? Do you get Benadryl or something, or what do you what do you uh, get now? Steroids. Oh, I will you tell you, a toddler on roid rage. Oh is, no! Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, because oh, when I, when I was a kid, we got calamine lotion, and that, that, yeah. it doesn't do anything. I am convinced no, it's, it's a conspiracy. It's yeah. But you just go, oh, we'll put calamine lotion on it, and then you're supposed to. Oh, that thanks, mom. That feels better. It doesn't feel better. It's calamine lotion is a lie. All right, so this ca- question came up while we were treating <laughs> treating her lice. Uh, can we have the question from Angelina, age nine, please? Hi, Joe and Sean. I'm Angelina, and I was one. So my mom told me that God made everything for a reason. What's what is lice's reason? <laughs> <laughs> what a good question, she Angelina. No introduction. <laughs> that was great. What is the reason for lice, Joe? Wouldn't I like to know? I mean, here's what we know. We know that creation is made by God, and in its original integrity is is very good that in the first five days of creation he looks at the world he's created and says it's good then he adds us and he says very good the problem is right after this you have original sin you have the fall adam and eve rebel from god and that rebellion doesn't just hurt us it doesn't just hurt our relationship with each other there's a sense in which this brings some damage into the whole order of creation And so St. Paul in Romans 8 talks about creation groaning, awaiting its redemption, that God wants more even from the created world than we currently experience. So that means there are all sorts of unpleasant creatures and things that get along in the worst and nastiest sort of ways. I mean, there's all kinds of creatures that continue to survive only by killing other creatures and often in really brutal and violent sort of ways. And so there's something that seems really unhappy about it. So I want you to think about two things. You got on the one hand, everything sort of neatly fitting together. And you think, aha, this looks like the work of a good God. On the other hand, you have things at constant war with each other. Like every species seems to be trying to destroy every other species. And and lice are maybe the one of the nastiest examples of that. But we see this all all over creation. So we want to say there's some goodness in creation that's still there. But also we see signs of of something broken and and something corrupt. And I think that explains the horrible behavior of lice and all sorts of parasites and you name the creature. Um, That this is a sign both that God created the world in its goodness and that the world is in a state of rebellion from God and needs healing. So I don't know what lice would look like in an unfallen and unbroken world, but that's my understanding as to why we've kind of found ourselves in this situation where there's so much goodness and so much awfulness kind of interwoven. Angelina, what a wonderful question. I'm sorry that you got uh, the lice and uh, you have a good mom, uh, but uh, we really appreciate that you got us started uh, with that. I'm going to read you one, Joe, and then we'll do some more video. 
Uh, Cheryl in Dallas, Texas, a member of Society 315, asks this. Is it a sin to participate in Protestant communities? I converted from non-denominational Protestant to Catholic in 2018 and continue to participate in Protestant Bible studies, social groups, etc. I am open about my faith, sharing opposing theology and defending Catholicism in the Church when necessary. However, I have read opposing comments on this issue. It's a really good question. And I would say, I think what she's doing is really good. I think she's doing two things. I want to highlight them both. Number one, she's maintaining healthy Christian friendships and community. Look, Protestant Bible studies are not some kind of rejection of the mass. And we'll get into more of that first part in a second. And then the second thing she's doing that I think we need to make sure is really clear there is she's aware of and able to explain the Catholic view on XYZ. You know, she's someone who came from the Protestant world. And so sometimes there's this desire to say, oh, well, don't go to non-Catholic Bible studies. It might fill your heads with wrong ideas and, and it might lead you away from Catholicism. My, my inclination is to say, for a convert especially, they've seen both positions or, you know, they've seen probably many positions on a lot of these issues and have come to be convinced that the Catholic one is right. You don't need to shield these people from hearing opposing views. Uh, when I was in Rome, I was uh, part of a Bible study that was all Baptists, except for me, and which was <laughs> kind of a weird. I don't know if there were many other Baptists in Rome, but it was it was great, and it was I think really good for them to see a Catholic who knew something about the Bible. And so I think it's probably really good for the Protestants in this Bible study to hear a Catholic and what they have to say, both in those times of disagreement to get maybe a Catholic take on really contentious issues. But also uh, just to see that Catholics aren't ignorant of Scripture. They're not ignorant of the teachings of Christ. They're, they're not indifferent to Jesus, you know, because there are a lot of negative stereotypes about Catholics. And so just by your presence and by being a vocal, obviously Christian participant in these groups, you can be a real leaven for the group and a real witness to the fact that people who love Jesus can also be Catholic. And, and you'd be surprised how many people don't know that. Um, the last thing I'd say here is it's important to realize a Bible study isn't a worship service. And so a Bible study you can do with your, you know, I, it, I would even encourage this. If you have people who are religiously seeking, you might invite them over for a Bible study. You might go through scripture with them. So by all means, you can have a Bible study with people who aren't on board. That doesn't mean you're you're replacing mass or, or anything like that. No, the mass is the worship of God. Bible studies are about studying what Jesus has to say. And when you look at the role of study and proclamation, that is frequently happening in context, in Scripture, where people aren't already converted all the way. They aren't already on board. So it might be, uh, you know, the apostles preaching to a group of faithful Jews. It might be the Bereans sitting down to go over Scripture to see what they think of Paul's message. You've got all these examples of, of people sitting down to study Scripture together, and it's never, strangely enough, just everybody who already gets it sitting down with one another. It, it, that's not really the role of what's going on. There is a conversion aspect that can play uh, out in, in Bible studies. So for all those reasons, I would say by all means, keep up the good work that you're doing by being a faithful Catholic witness uh, in these contexts. Cheryl, uh, thank you for your support, and thank you for that beautiful question. appreciate that. It's kind of an open forum today, open to anybody in Society 315, and we've got vi both uh, video questions and questions submitted in writing. So let's do another video question. Uh, let's go to uh, Ruben in Laredo, Texas. You guys ready with uh, Ruben's video? Here we go. 
Hi, my name is Ruben in Laredo, Texas, and I have two quick questions to see if I can squeeze them in. Number one, if Jesus opened the gates to heaven and our hope is the resurrection, what did the people of the Old Testament or those before Jesus have their hope in? I know there was, I think, the bosom of Abraham or maybe a limbo, but if they don't go to heaven, what was their hope then? And then secondly, why does Jesus often, after a miracle, tell people not to say anything to anyone? Or even at the transfiguration, why did he tell them not to tell anyone? Thanks for all that you do. God bless you. Well, uh, thanks, Ruben. Such a typical Catholic answers. Uh, send us a video with one question. Boom! Immediately, right out of the gate. I got two quick questions. <laughs> nice job, Ruben. Nice he, he got him job. in a pretty good <laughs> I know, amount of time. And he got him in pretty quick. Yeah, that was yeah, it. Usually, usually that's the, the last call we take will be the person who's like, I actually, I know I told the call screener I had one question. I've got five. <laughs> no, we got 30 seconds. <laughs> Go ahead. That's a long preamble. Yes. <laughs> exactly. All right, Ruben, you maintain the tradition of uh, just blowing right past what we said and asking as many questions <laughs> as you want. And now some answers from Joe. Joe? I like that you pick on Ruben when he's not able to do defend himself. That's typical, oh, I'm not going to know. I don't ever pick on people who can defend themselves. What do you think, I'm an <laughs> idiot? <laughs> when they're down is literally the best time to kick yeah, a person. right. What a, I, he looked like he was strong. I don't want to yeah. pick on him. So uh, let's look at both those questions. So one of the questions was, what was the hope of those who died uh, before Christ? And the second one, I've already forgotten because we were yammering. Um, Oh, the, <laughs> the first question was, okay, the hope for the people. Yes. And the second was, why does Jesus, he does miracles, and then he tells people, don't oh, tell yes, anybody of course, about this. The messianic secret. Yeah. So uh, Jesus, when he does miracles, this one's more straightforward. He is part of a three-year mission and slowly introducing people to a really revolutionary sort of message. And we forget how strange and revolutionary this is, but it might help just imagine you as, you know, faithful believer in 2023 someone wants to come along and tell you that they're actually god in the flesh <laughs> how do you do that and how do you do that in a way to reach the most people uh without just immediately getting thrown into an asylum in modern case or on a cross in, in the old testament or in the in the older you know in the first century uh and the way Jesus does it is he slowly reveals himself and he proves himself by miracles and he does all of these things. If, if he had just imagine the really flashy approach, we might be tempted to to assume God would take. Jesus just comes and performs some really undeniable, really flashy kind of miracles while declaring, I'm the second person of the Trinity. Well, what would people have done there? They probably would have thought he was a demon. They probably would have thought he was a powerful spiritual being, of course but not the God of Israel. And they probably would have rejected him and rejected him, to be totally frank, somewhat justifiably, because it doesn't look or sound like God, but instead he approaches in gentleness and he slowly has this kind of set of miracles where he's telling people, don't, don't go spreading this right now. And so things spread very slowly and kind of quietly. And there's just kind of, there are rumors and murmurs and kind of a growing interest in who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And what's he all about? He's got this teaching ministry. He's got these miracles I keep hearing about attributed to him. He's saying some kind of bold things about who he is. I want to figure out what's going on there. And so he, he leaves it intentionally as a bit of a question mark to invite people to want to come and find out more rather than just immediately just declaring, here's the answer, here it is. Pedagogically, he gives a little bit 
people can kind of understand and leaves them wanting more, leaves them wanting to ask more questions. And that approach, leaving religion aside, we can say from a teaching perspective, is so much more effective. If you got up in a fourth grade classroom and just said, I'm going to tell you the timetables right now, and here's all of the information you need for fifth grade, all right, there you go, go home. That's bad teaching. You have to gently, slowly work with people, and that's what Jesus does. And part of that is not letting them uh, totally hijack the order in which he's doing things by, by loudly talking about it. Because we see people who ignore his instructions and they go and proclaim it. And then sometimes Jesus isn't able to even go and preach in those towns because it's kind of overrun by, by we would call them in the Midwest, rubberneckers. You know, people who just want to gawk. Uh, looky loose would be another, you know, like people who they're just there yeah. for the spectacle. And that's not actually helpful for his ministry. So that was the second of the two questions. Uh, and the, I think the one that's, that's fairly straightforward from scripture, what's going on there. The other one is a harder one to answer. What was the hope of the Old Testament faithful who died? Now, we know what they received. And, you know, as Ruben already mentioned, they received the bosom of Abraham in Luke chapter 16, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. When Lazarus dies, he's carried off to the bosom of Abraham. This is a place of rest and happiness, but it's not the full presence and vision of God because Jesus hasn't opened the gates yet. And so this is sometimes called the limbo of the fathers. Uh, limbo, limbus is edge. So you're just kind of like, you're right on the edge there. You're, you're not in heaven yet, uh, but you're also not being punished in hell. So we can talk about it being like in hell, you know, Jesus descended into hell, but we mean they're the grave. So that's what they experienced. What did they expect to experience? Some kind of rest uh, in, in happiness. Uh, and that brings us to the break. As you can hear, uh, thank you, Ruben, very, very much. I hope you don't mind a little bit of teasing about the two questions. Thanks for your You're support as well. Now. I'm scared of Ruben, yeah. All right, we'll be right back with more Society 315 Open Forum on Catholic Answers Live. Is relativism dead? It sure seems dead. Each day, new moral demands are made, and they are presented to us as absolutes. Everything from transgender ideology to physician-assisted suicide, is presented as a moral good that all right-thinking people must accept. But Catholic Answers' own Carlo Broussard says look deeper, and you will see today's moralism is just relativism dressed up in new clothes. Carlo's eye-opening book, The New Relativism, shines a light on how the sacred moral teachings of this age cover up a deep denial of moral truth. Order your copy of The New Relativism today at shop.catholic.com and be prepared to defend the truth against aggressive relativism. The New Relativism at shop.catholic.com or ask for it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. If you're not a Bible scholar, the full message of how the Sunday Mass readings fit together can be tough to comprehend. Apologist Carlo Broussard is here to help. Join Carlo every Friday for the Sunday Catholic Word podcast. In each episode, he unpacks the scripture readings for that Sunday and brings them all together so you can better understand and defend the faith. Visit SundayCatholicWord.com to subscribe. That's SundayCatholicWord.com. Our Lord needs articulate defenders of the truth to spread the joy of the Catholic faith. Catholic Answers Monthly Giving Club, Society 315, helps you fulfill the call in 1 Peter 315 to always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. 
For as little as $10 a month, you'll help Catholics grow in faith, bring lapsed Catholics home, and lead non-Catholics to the truth. Go to casociety315.com and join today. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. Thanks so much for being here with us. If you're in the U.S. on this celebration of Labor Day, uh, if you're around the world, uh, whatever's up uh, where you are today, thanks for being here with us. And it's the kind of the—in America, at least when—the America I grew up in. I love when people say that. The America I grew up in. Uh, Labor Day was um, like—you went to school the day after Labor Day. That was the day you went back to school. So this—Labor Day was always— Summer's over, back to school. Now, I notice in my town now, the kids have already been in school for about two weeks. Uh, and I think that's more, that, that's more generally the, the, the thing. But traditionally, this was it. This was the end of summer. Um, your kid's not quite in school yet, so you don't no, even know. No, actually, my, my daughter just started. Oh, she did? Yeah. So she's, uh, this is one of those other things where she hasn't started as for pre-recording, but she'll have started uh, by the time it, it goes live. So yeah, she's starting on Thursday. Oh, that's so exciting! Is she, is she... She's she's at Our Lady's Montessori, which Ooh. is run by the Salt Sisters, and they are the sweetest. And it's Montessori method, and it, it I mean, the classroom looks adorable. It, it was just man, oh, a lot, a lot nicer than law school. Well, she is she one of those kids that's like, oh, I can't wait to go to school, Daddy. I'm like, she's all. Uh, she she's she's pretty nervous about it. Oh. I think she's really excited about it. She's really happy that it means she's big now. She was telling me this morning that three-year-old's big. And, you know, uh, well, one-year-old is... is baby, two is little kid, three-year-old's big kid. <laughs> and to turn out big kid just goes on until 18. Yeah. So, I don't know. At some point, there's teenagers. Because kids always have yeah, a thing true. about te- I don't. Th- there's a teenager over there. You know, like, yeah. the teenager is like a, a scary thing. Uh, all right. So I'm going to read you a question. Uh, all the questions, by the way, uh, come from our Society 315, uh, the Giving Society here at Catholic Answers. And this one, uh, wait, I'm, <laughs> I've lost myself in the document. This one comes from Carol in Newburgh, Oregon. Carol says, during Mass, why do we, quote, dare to say the Our Father? I'm curious about the use of the word dare, since the Our Father is one of our most common prayers. We dare to say. That's what it says in the Mass. We dare to say, Our Father. It's really incredible, and I'm glad she's asking this, because I think this is something we can really take for granted. Like, of course God is our Father. In the scheme of world religions, you have no idea how crazy that is to say. Like, this is a really shocking sort of claim. I was speaking with a Muslim friend who was really, (laughs) I want to say, kind of scandalized, by the fact that as Christians, we believe God is our Father. And she said, you know, we've got like 95 or 99 different names for Allah, but Father is not one of them. And, you know, it was, it was something that was, they're very focused on the transcendence and majesty and, and grandeur of God and the intimacy of calling him Father and suggesting you could be a child of God. I mean, imagine if, if you went around claiming, oh yeah, my friend the Pope or my friend the President, People would think that was kind of an audacious sort of claim, and you'd really better be able to back it up. And we're saying, yeah, my friend God, my father, God, I'm I'm his kid. Uh, that is a stunning kind of claim. And, and I think we've become so numb from using the term that we, we maybe don't appreciate how shocking it is. So a, a good place to look would be 1 John chapter 3, 
which begin, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Mm -hmm. And then he said, beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, this is a really remarkable claim that if we're children of God now, that means something even bigger, something kind of unthinkable in eternal glory, that if we are sons, then heirs, as St. Paul says. Uh, we become partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter says, that we're passing from glory to glory, as St. Paul says again. So this notion that in claiming to be a child of God, you're claiming to be a co-heir with Christ of the eternal glory of the Father is a really shocking thing to say, because you're claiming something that is godlike for yourself. And I'm not exaggerating when I call it that. Jesus uses the line from the Psalms, ye are gods, and he applies it to believers, that those who persevere with him will share in divine glory. So we can, in a loose sense, talk about them as gods. Jesus does. You know, I'm not saying anything he hasn't already said. Now, obviously, they're not gods in the sense that God is God. They're not uncreated. They're not infinite. They're not the object of worship. But they are sharing in this divine glory so that compared to us, they do seem godlike. And I'll give this last example. In the book of Revelation, uh, the angel is so glorious and so magnificent that John, the apostle, who knows better, can't help himself and twice starts to try to worship the angel because his brain can't fathom that he's not in the presence of God or a God because there's so much glory and majesty. And St. Paul tells us we'll be judging angels. We will be higher than the angels. And so... The saints in glory, this is something that so often gets lost. When we talk about like prayer to saints, oh, you know, we're afraid of giving too much honor or glory to the saints. If you realized how much honor and glory God had already given the saints in heaven, it would take all of your strength and all of your will not to fall down and worship them because that's how glorious they are. All of that is to say, when we claim to be children of God, when we approach God as our father, we dare to say it because that is an enormous, magnificent sort of promise. Carol, what a wonderful question. Thanks uh, so much for that question, and thanks uh, for your support of what we do here at Catholic Answers. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest. It's a Society 315 open forum, and some of the questions have come via video, and we'll do a video question now. This one uh, comes to us from Dallas, Texas. Dan is in Dallas, Texas. Hi, Cy and Joe. This is Dan in Dallas. And I have an open forum question for you. I uh, just wonder what your thoughts would be. It's always bothered me that the culture thinks of our planet, our reality, as an insignificant speck in an insignificant solar system in an insignificant galaxy somewhere far flung in the universe. When in fact, the word that created the universe took on flesh and redeemed all of us. Just curious what your thoughts are on that and what we can, what we can say to counteract that. Thank you for taking my call. Oh, man. And he goes right back to smoking his pipe at the end of the question. I like yeah, that. I hope, I hope some people are watching. Any man who starts like, the like question a... by puffing on a pipe and then goes back to smoking <laughs> the pipe at the end, you're going to get an answer, Dan. Uh, Hi, this is Gilbert Chief Gesserson, Chesterton. I, yes, hello. <laughs> I, am, I know. I know. It's very nice. All right. Uh, uh, so uh, Dan's question. Yeah. Insignificant I, it, planet. It bothers me when people do that. And I think, actually, I mentioned G.K. Chesterton there. I believe he's the one who points out how dumb this argument is, that when you start pointing to, oh, you're really insignificant, you're small, that is a really silly way of measuring the worth. Would you say, well, 
my wife is pretty great, but I like elephants better because they're bigger. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's moronic. Uh, That is actually moronic. Yeah. And so you wouldn't be like, oh, look at that rich person. He's so insignificant. He's so tiny compared to his house. It's like, no, if the the house (laughs) is showing something of the person's importance. And so likewise, if God created the entire cosmos for us, that shows how much he loves us and how right. much he cares about us. The fact that we're very small compared to the cosmos isn't a negative any more than like right. buying a really big house for your wife would be a negative. Just, oh, he must not think I'm important. He got a house that's bigger than I am. <laughs> well, I hope he did. <laughs> that's very funny. Uh, can, can I say something else about the universe and just ask you about this? Because yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> that's such a nice open-ended question. Can I just you, say you something about the universe? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to make a comment about the universe, please. I think in and out's overrated. <laughs> yeah. I have an opinion about the universe. <laughs> I created the largest possible. <laughs> yeah, I can now ask anything I want. No, but the, here's the deal, Joe. When you, I understand the the feeling of insignificance given what we now know about the universe. I mean, they show these pictures from that telescope up there. I forget who the telescope, I think it's the James Webb telescope. And it's like, this would be the size of the sky if you held a postage stamp at arm's length. Like that's how much sky we, and there's 100,000, thousand galaxies in it, each with a billion stars. And you're like, "Uh, okay, all right, I'm very, very small. But the, the, the corollary to that, that I think that many people don't think about is, the universe is not big to God, because if you have infinite power, even creating a universe that is almost infinite is the easiest thing in the world for you. There's nothing easier. Like this creating almost a, infinite is a nonsensical term. But well, yes. I, but you know what I'm saying? Like, the, like <laughs> almost, in, big. <laughs> almost infinite in the sense that for a human, it would be hard to distinguish between yes, the size yes. of this universe True. and infinity. So from our perspective, it's almost, but it's nothing to God. Like a grain of sand is the same difficulty for him as an entire universe. Right. And so let me give you a couple of things. First, yes, we have maybe a renewed appreciation with this, with astronomy, but this is something ancient people knew. Uh, There's a sense of this, this feeling of insignificance coupled with the realization that we have a special place. Because look around the world, there's a vast world and yet we're the only species with intelligence. You look around the known cosmos, and we've never found, you know, uh, conspiracy theories notwithstanding, I'm sorry, everyone. We've never found convincing evidence of intelligent life out there besides humans. So we are so far removed from the rest of material reality that we, at one point, are at least seem very small, and at another point seem very special. Because, look, you don't have elephants building giant telescopes to realize how small they are in the world. And so even as we do this thing, we're, we're undertaking this very human thing where we're absorbing a real sense of the cosmos and of the whole, and lower creatures can't do that. And so there is, uh, paradoxically, both a sense of our smallness and our greatness wrapped up there. And this is foretold in the Psalms, because this is, again, this is not something you need a telescope. You just need to go outside on a starry night and realize yeah. this. And so uh, in Psalm 8... Verse three to five. When I look at thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast established, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him little less than a God and dost crown him with glory and honor. Thou hast given him dominion over the works of thy hands and has put all things under his feet. And so 
It's that notion that on the one hand, you look at the moon and the stars in the sky and think, sheesh, how do I fit into this big thing? And then you realize, like, it's a gift that I'm even able to ask that question. And it's a sign of this spark of divine intelligence, reason, intellect, this immaterial, everlasting soul that I have, that I'm even able to com like contemplate and ponder these big things. And that is a tremendous gift of a God who loves me. Last thing I'd say, we can think of the bigness as making God uh, remote. That the God big enough to make that kind of universe is too big to have a relationship mm -hmm. with us. Yeah. And I think that gets it exactly wrong. And the example I'd give is the federal government. The bigger and more powerful it gets, the more intimately it can know you. <laughs> and oh, that's creepy. You. Now you're making me feel weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, imagine <laughs> yeah. instead of that, a God who loves you. That the bigger and more powerful he is, the more he can love you, the more intimately he knows you. Mm. That he knows you better than you know yourself in a way that a, a weak, well-meaning, you know, deity wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, Joe, thank you very, very much. Dan, thank you for that uh, question. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to talk about that because I, I feel like quite in sympathy with you and Joe. I do feel like often there's an agenda when the word insignificant is used in reference to human beings. No, no matter what, you should, it just is not a word that fits for human beings. Yeah, we talk about the, uh, the wage gap between men and women, but if we start measuring people by size, we're going to have to talk about a size gap. <laughs> I know. I'd love to say women, women are, are less important than men. And I, Look, I'm doing great. I'm getting more significant as I go on in life, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, thank you again, Dan. Thank you for your support. Uh, Joe, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a high grade on that answer, even though I detected a slight undercurrent of negativity towards elephants uh, throughout that answer. <laughs> we'll take a quick break. Right back. Yeah, with... They hold a grudge, too. <laughs> I know. They never forget. Right back with more Catholic Answers Live. There's only one Catholic Answers Live. Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. On the web at realestateforlife.org. One of the biggest mistakes a Christian can make is to try to do good without God's help. St. Therese said, when we trust only ourselves and not God, our soul becomes incapable of virtue. Her remedy? Works of charity. And the greatest work of charity is to share the gospel. At St. Paul Street Evangelization, a Catholic nonprofit, we encourage you to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Catholic Answers is supported in part by St. Paul Street Evangelization. StreetEvangelization.com If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts today. Welcome back. Catholic Answers Live. 
The universe is big. We get it. Uh, a great question uh, from Dan uh, just before we went to the break. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest. It's an open forum. I like the people who tuned in during the break. And, <laughs> and I just like, you just start off by saying the universe yeah. is big. The universe is big. That's a, I'm, I'm trying to start with big general statements and then work I down like from there. Yeah, You're it's just a, like, yeah. It's a new hey, m- weather forecast. A lot of stuff going on <laughs> yeah. in the universe. Yeah. All right. The sky well, has a lot of stuff in it. Broadcasting into yeah. space. So we right. wanted to make sure we're, we're not alienating any possible listeners. <laughs> no, that's exactly exactly it. We want to be inviting. And so we say these things like the universe is big that everyone can agree to. Then we move on to the things that might be controversial. Uh, Darren in Wassa, Nebraska, he not only... Sorry, we, we don't want them to feel alienated. Oh, good Lord. Good Lord. <laughs> Joe, with the puns. Okay. I, just, I, I couldn't let it go. I, no, you, I can, know. you can never let it go. It's not that, oh, this one time I couldn't let it go. There's never been a pun that you couldn't let. I've been in meetings with you where the meeting moves on, and it's just five minutes later, and then you, Joe gets his chance to speak. Boom, he goes back to the pun from five minutes ago. I just ago. want to make sure. <laughs> just, I, I'm not worried about timing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I just, let me just go back because there was an opportunity for a pun five minutes ago. I, I held my tongue, and I really regret it. <laughs> All right, uh, Darren's in Wasson, Nebraska, and I like that he sent this. He's a supporter, a, a Society 315 supporter of Catholic Answers, as all of our questioners are today. And uh, he, uh, he not only gave us the question, he gave me directions on how to read it. So uh, he, he has a little thing where in parentheses, sigh inserts pause here. Let's see if you can tell. <laughs> Let's see if you can tell where he put the pause. I think I know where this is going. Hi, my name is Darren, and I'm from Wasson, Nebraska, listening on Spirit. Catholic radio. <laughs> uh, my question is, what is some biblical support for offering up our suffering for others? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the, so there's a few things going on there. The clearest kind of direct evidence is in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. But I'm going to give you the Bible verse and then explain kind of the theology behind it. St. Paul says something that is really strange. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, the church. And you think, okay, there's a lot of weird things. First, this guy just said he rejoices in his suffering, and then he claims that in his flesh he's completing what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And this is somehow for the church. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on there. And so you think, what in the world is going on? And the short answer is this. By baptism, you share in the threefold anointing of Christ. So the word Christ or Messiah in Hebrew, um, we think of it as just meaning Savior because, you know, Jesus is our Savior. But the word actually means anointed. And there's three offices that have anointings tied to them, which are priest, prophet, and king. And you can see that throughout the Old Testament. And so we share in this, we are a, a royal nation and a holy priesthood for Christ. And so how do we do that? Well, there's a lot of ways we do that. St. Gregory the Great has a beautiful homily on this, where he talks about when you govern your own body, like when you don't give in to the flesh, for instance, you're being a, a king or a queen of your own body. You're ruling because that's what it is to be a king, to be a queen, to rule, to govern. And so you govern those things that have been placed in your life by God, your relationship to your body, your household, whatever it is, you, you govern well, you govern in this holy manner. That's one of the ways you share in the, the kingship of Christ. You share in the prophetic uh, ministry of Christ when you, so 
um, prophetas. You, you speak on behalf of, you speak on behalf of God. When you tell the truth, when you speak the gospel, you're speaking in a prophetic way. We think of prophecy just as like foretelling the future, and sometimes it's that. But it can also just be proclaiming the truth of a situation. When the prophet Nathan goes and rebukes David for his affair, that's prophetic. He doesn't have to be revealing the future. He's telling the truth about the present. And so we share in this ministry, we are called to evangelize. We're called to proclaim the gospel in word and deeds. And that's sharing in the prophetic dimension of Christ. So far, so good. What about the priestly one? What does a priest do? If a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God, if a king is one who rules, what is a priest? A priest is one who offers sacrifice. And what sacrifices do we offer? Well, St. Paul talks about, there's, there's several. Now, obviously, the ministerial priesthood, the sacramental priesthood, offers the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Mass. But we, as individual Christians, offer bo like bodily sacrifice. So in Romans 12, St. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And there's two things I want to draw out there. First, sometimes when people hear that Christian worship is to be done in spirit and in truth, they think that means non-bodily, because they're imagining spirit versus body, and that's kind of the Gnostic error, and that's false. St. Paul is very clear that bodily worship is spiritual worship, Romans 12, verse 1, that our spiritual worship is making sacrifices in our body. So, you know that thing I said about, you know, when you deny yourself, when you govern yourself well, that's good governance as part of the kingship of Christ. But also when you make sacrifices in your body, that can be part of the priesthood of Christ, when you sacrifice for another. Now, that could be really practical. There's, you know, one last croissant, and you know your wife really likes croissants, and so you let her have it. There's a little bodily sacrifice going on there. You offer it up for her. That's pretty obvious, pretty direct. You can see the sacrificial dimension there. But it can also be taking whatever sufferings you have and offering them up for the church or for another person, which is what St. Paul is talking about there in Colossians 1, verse 24. That's how it is that he's completing what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Not that Christ didn't do his part, but that in baptism, we aren't told, like, you don't need to worry about your cross anymore because Jesus has his. No, no, we're told, take up your cross and follow me, that now our crosses they're not disposed of. They're united with the cross of Christ, and they're given dignity, and they're given meaning, and they're given merit because of the merits of Christ. And so now our crosses mean something that they didn't mean before. Like suffering, now it has a purpose. And so that's, again, kind of long story short, uh, if you want to read more about that, uh, John Paul II has an entire encyclical just on the meaning of suffering, but there's kind of a shortish answer for you. Uh, what a uh, uh, thanks you very much for the question. Uh, what a great question, uh, Darren. Uh, I hope I read the pause uh, correctly, and thank you uh, for your support as well. Let's do a video question before we have to end this hour, and then we'll continue next hour with lots more video questions for Joe Heschmeyer. Uh, Eric is in Aventura, Florida. Uh, here's his question. Hey, Cy and Joe. This is Eric calling from Aventura, Florida. Um, I will not be asking a question involving a chapter or verse, as last time I was mercilessly mocked for using the wrong verse and chapter. What? I'm assuming that was you. I would like to ask a question about um, the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'd always assumed that she was probably pretty young when she first became pregnant, but I recently heard on a Pints with Aquinas podcast that she was probably as young as even 12 years old. How can I reconcile that with these days, and is there any potential meaning behind it? Thank you. 
Uh, first of all, I'd like to apologize to, for the entire apostolate to whoever mocked you for using the wrong <laughs> yeah. chapter of verse. I cannot imagine what kind of person would engage yeah, in that sort would, of mockery. Who would do that? That is, I don't know. Well, well I'll tell you what, we're going to be having a meeting about this, uh, Eric. <laughs> uh, Joe, I, I do want you to get to his, a very important question, though. Yes, let's do it. So, uh, first, there's uh, no evidence I've ever seen that Mary was as young as 12. Um, I'd have to find out more. I didn't see the Pines of the Aquinas clip uh, where that was talked about. 14 is a number I've heard, but probably mid-teens is a fairly safe estimate. And that's not based on anything we're getting in Scripture. That's based just on what we know about uh, Jewish first marriages. I believe it's Michael Satlow. Uh, is the, Did you mean the, first century the, marriages or first marriages? First marriages, like remarriages or later. Oh, oh, okay. I'm oh, sorry. Like the, I, the first time somebody, yeah, no, sorry. I, I worded that in a, a weirdly technical way. Uh, at the age of a first marriage, the average man in the first century in Palestine was in his 20s. The average woman was in her mid-teens. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, if of course, if a widow, the, all of that's going to throw the numbers off. So we're, we're ignoring remarriages. We're, we're ignoring, you know, gotcha. divorce. We're ignoring right. all of those things. Just age at first marriage. Uh, that's what we're looking at there. And so we know that in the culture at the time, mid-teens, it was not unusual. You would have already had, you know, some sort of rite of passage. You know, later on, it'd be, you know, the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah. Uh, so you'd be considered an adult. But so it just, it was culturally very different. Like we prepared people for adulthood at a much earlier age because people died a lot younger. You couldn't say, you know, I'm going to go do a gender studies uh, major in college and then get my master's and then, gratuitous. And then you die. <laughs> gratuitous. It was, it was gratuitous. <laughs> <Go> <laughs> I don't mean to knock gender studies. I mean, I, I, yeah, another you do. time I will. <laughs> so all that's to say, you, you don't have the modern world. Like nowadays, life spans much longer. And so we allow more time for kids to grow up. And that can be good or bad. And we allow, like, adolescence is actually a very new idea. I think it's only in the early 20th century you start getting references to adolescence as a period distinct from adulthood. And so adolescence, we talk about delayed adolescence, but the whole idea of adolescence, that you wouldn't just leave a 13-year-old in charge of running the farm, is something that's kind of new in, in human history. Because when people are dying at 30, you can't afford to do that. I mean, I look at our video department, if we want gratuitous... <laughs> Imagine that that would be the end of their lifespan, these late 20s guys. And and so you that you have to prepare for life in a different way when you've got 30 years to deal with rather than 80. I don't know why I took gratuitous pleasure in that. That would be the end of their life cycle. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I apologize wow. for that. <laughs> I don't want to tell you how long ago you would have died, Sean, in I the know. ancient world. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, some people made it. Some people had long life. The emperor did. The emperor lived to 90, I think. Was, was it the, uh, Augustus, didn't he live to be about 90? Or he was old. I don't old, remember anyway. when Augustus died. I know a lot of the politicians did live longer lives. They lived comfortable. I wonder kind of why. The, the emperor of Catholic answers <laughs> lives. That's me. Uh, hey, um, uh, sorry, Eric, uh, that you were mocked. We didn't mean it to be mocking. We perhaps meant it to be joshing or kidding or jocularity, but it went, if it went over to mocking, I apologize. More with Joe Heschmeyer right after this. We'll continue with Society 315 Open Forum. Questions on video and questions that I'll read for Joe right after this on Catholic Answers Live. <laughs> 